0: On today's episode getting faster at 60 with world record holder dan king welcome to the podcast helping you train rehab and run smarter when i first started running in my 20s i knew it would be something i'd be passionate about for the rest of my life but unfortunately developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. If you are following the Run Smarter YouTube channel, you may be familiar with Dan King. Uh, I released a video uh, two weeks ago at the time of recording, or a week and a half ago, and it already has like 11,000 downloads, which is enormous compared to my usual videos and what they amass. And we go through Dan's secrets. He is in his 60s and running really fast, and he has became the first person in the world in their 60s to run a mile in under four minutes and 50 seconds. That is an enormous achievement. And he just has gone from strength to strength and is actually running faster now than he had in his 50s. And he uncovers exactly why, covers his um, training strategies and approaches. And I think a lot of people benefit from the how to run faster as you age type of category. And what better, than to learn from the person who is (laughs) breaking records. And I know this is just a case study. I know um, the sample size of one, everyone responds differently, but I think the tips and tactics that Dan shares in this, I think everyone can take away from. No matter what age you are, I'm going to take away this and I'm in my 30s. And so if you want to be a better runner, if you want to perform better, you're going to get a ton of insights here. I was first introduced to Dan um, as a client and he's a current client of mine. We're nursing an ankle injury that he does have and trying to restore him back to full health. And while we have been rehabbing his injury, I've learned more about him and I'm, I just thought it'd be excellent just to get him on, to jump on to the podcast, have a chat and like I say, repurpose it as a YouTube video. So um, if you have seen the the YouTube video, this is a, a lot more detail, a lot more uh, insights, a lot more lessons and hope you enjoy. Dan King, thanks for joining me on the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you for having me, Brody. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Me too, mate. Let's dive into you first. Let's introduce yourself to the listeners and, um, you know, it might be inside and outside of running.
1: Uh, okay, sure. Uh, my name is Dan King. I'm a 64 year old retired person and a masters runner. Um, I spent my business career in corporate finance, and then I was an entrepreneur from basically 2000 until we sold the business we built in 2017. And since then, I still uh, keep myself busy with certain business engagements, uh, but they're kind of things I do on the side. And then I primarily now a professional master's runner. Cool. I love that. (laughs) And
0: you mentioned to me that you actually started competing relatively late in your career. Can you
1: explain that? Well, um, I actually started competing um, in high school. I ran uh, one year of high school track cross country and, <laughs> and uh, realized I had two things I learned about myself was that I had some ability for the sport and that I was willing to work hard. Um, so I walked on at the University of Colorado um, as a, I think, really a sophomore, and I ran collegiately for three years with the with the uh, sports teams there. Um, my college running ended with a really advanced case of plantar fasciitis. Um, I tried to basically overpower that injury and continue to train on an injured tendon and then raced on an injured tendon to the point where I couldn't even walk on my foot anymore, and that was sort of my that was sort of the end of the of the road for me collegiately. And and then after that, I really just wasn't interested in competitive athletics for quite some time. I don't think I got back into it until my mid-30s.
0: Right. Um, and so when did it really ramp up in terms of competitiveness or taking it a bit more seriously?
1: You know, I would get myself in pretty decent shape at times during my mid-30s. 30s but the plantar fasciitis problem that I had in college actually kept showing up with my running and the more the older I got the more frequently it would it would turn back up and it would continue to derail me I think when I turned 40 I, I sort of made a decision to sort of redefine myself as just a endurance athlete and not a runner because I was spending so much time recovering from injuries and not running and I also had read a book that really kind of planted a seed. Um, it was called Younger Next Year and it really made a physiological case for the importance of staying fit and active as it relates to how well you age. And so, you know, at that point, my journey sort of became, I'm going to be an endurance athlete. If I can't run fine, I'll do other things. And I think since I turned 40, I've really been consequent about just maintaining a very high level of sort of cardiorespiratory fitness. But the the journey as a masters athlete, it's a little bit owe it to my sister. She um she recruited me when I was in my early fifties to run on their uh, their club or on their um, basically their local uh, running club team in the club cross country championships. And I think I had just turned fifty, and I went out there. I was running on a forty plus team, but uh, I was just like there were like four or five hundred men in this race, and it was just such an epiphany for me that like running was still that competitive at a national level in the United States and it just really kind of fired me up at that point for for the master scene
0: like you said you um from your early days you can work hard and you've got a series of like competitiveness in you it seems so it seems that that, like ignited a few things
1: yeah, I I, don't, I think it's, for me, it's not being competitive as much as I'm just really achievement oriented. When I apply myself to things, I just like to do them really well. And I feel best about myself when I can do things to the best of my ability. Like if I show up for a race and I get beat because I wasn't very well prepared, then I feel kind of crappy about myself. And if I show up for a race and I just really leave it all out there and I perform at a high level and it sort of reflects the work that went into it, then I feel great, even if I don't win. So it's like, You know, the competitiveness is an interesting thing. I think I mostly compete with myself on this stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, in saying that, how did you fare? How did you position yourself in
1: that particular race? I ended up, uh, I think I ended up like eighth in the 50 to 54 age group. Um, And, you know, it was, like I said, it was an eye opener. It was um, sort of early season for me. I hadn't come into it at my best fitness, but it still just gave me sort of this feel of like, this, uh, I, again, you know, when you line up at the start of a cross country race and there's like literally, let's say 400 people wide, that is just a, that's just a crazy, uh, thing about this sport. And it's just something I've just always loved. And, um, so I had, I had an okay, uh, an okay outcome. It got me, it got me really fired up though, to, to apply myself more to my training. I'd been coming off an injury, and then I think um, the next national championship I ran was the U.S. Cross Country Championship, which is about a, a month and a half later. And I ended up second in my age group in that race. Um, it wasn't as competitive of a field, though. So, but it still gave me it. You know, I the, I closed the gap on the guy who won my age group in the previous race from basically a minute and ten, and I reduced that gap to about ten seconds. So wow. I, I knew I knew I had a lot more upside in. In me, and uh, so it was, that was sort of what sort of launched it for me. And then I'll, I'll just say one more thing about the. My sister also um, told me, I think it was when I was maybe also early fifties. Maybe it was the following summer, actually. Uh, she, I was going to be in California for vacation with my family anyway at our family cabin, and she told me that the World Masters Championships were happening in Sacramento overlapping the time I was going to be out there. And I was just like, what's the world masters championships? I never (laughs) had even heard of the, that there was a, a competition like that. And so I looked into it and I decided to go ahead and enter it because it, it totally, you know, it was just basically a three hour drive to go compete and then, and then three hour drive to go home. But, um, I entered two events. I entered the, uh, 8k cross country race and the, um, the 10k and You know you can look at the qualifying marks of everybody in those events and in the 8k cross country race there were half a dozen guys that had just far superior times to me so i didn't really have any expectations going into that race um but as as it turns out i just was so well prepared for that race i ran great i ended up being the top american in that entire competition and i was i also won my age group so That race really set me up for believing in sort of my abilities as a a competitive master's athlete. I was just like, wow, I just won a world championship. And the thing that also made it super special is that my dad was there, my wife was there, my sister, my nephew, a whole bunch of people that are passionate about running and they all got to see that. So that was pretty cool.
0: That is very cool. A very cool moment. And I guess since then, Uh, Is that the type of events that you've gravitated towards? Are you sticking to the cross-country scene? Um, And what other events are you competing in throughout the year?
1: Um, You know, I live in Colorado. It's at altitude, um, you know, so it's like it's basically, you know, 5,300 feet, which I don't know how many meters that is, but it just, you run slower at altitude, you know, from the 800 up, it's slower. And so I've always sort of like, gravitated to just local racing and road racing and um and I love cross country that was my favorite sport that I did collegiately and you know just just I don't know just it just hits different for me but when uh, the pandemic hit and I was training you know I uh there just wasn't anything to do anyway there were no organized road races there was no organized cross country but there were a few track meets that started to show up and leading up to the pandemic, I had given myself a goal to try to see if I could break the five-minute mile as a 60-year-old. And um, and so I had started to train for that goal. And then the pandemic hit, there was nothing you know, to compete in anyway. Um, and so I just kept training for the mile. And then as the as the summer went on, all of a sudden, a few races started to show up. May, mainly, it was one meet director, out east named Dave Milner, who put on a a race called Music City Distance Carnival, and then ended up organizing a couple of other track meets after that. And, you know, thanks to him, I got an opportunity to try to break that five minute mile. I first tried it at Music City, I came up, Oh no, I actually broke the five minute mile. I ran 457 in the master's race. But it also realized, it also helped me realize that my times were getting pretty close to both the world and the uh, American Records for the event. So So I just kept working towards that goal. I eventually got a chance to, to, to race, um, some fast miles. And again, thanks to Dave Milner, I was back in, um, all, all back East. But since then I've just totally had fun on the track. It's like, I took 40 years off from track racing and then I got back into it (laughs) really in 2021 and I've just had a blast racing on the track since, you know, I don't know how long that I, I still haven't raced indoor since college, which is 1980, um, but I've definitely done a lot of outdoor track racing in the last two years. Wow, I'm, I'm
0: writing down a few things that I wanna get back to, but um, I wanna set the stage a little bit and talk about what highlights, what achievements, accolades you've managed to accumulate in your your years. Um, would you mind listing a few off of your biggest achievements that you're most proud of?
1: Um, well, <clears throat> number one, I think I would say it was it was breaking the world record for the, for the mile run for over 60s. Um, so t- at the end of 2020, I got another chance to go back east, and um, Dave Milner put on a, a track meet. He had, he, he, he had an open mile. Uh, because of COVID, every other athlete that had entered that race had dropped out. Um, so it was just me running on a, <laughs> on a track race um, in Columbia, South Carolina in the evening. And interestingly, it was the day that uh, Hurricane Laura had passed through the state. And so all day, it was just like as windy as you can imagine. And I was like, there's just no way I'm going to run fast. Um, but by the evening, it had cooled off quite a bit. And uh, Dave, the meet director, found a couple of people to pace me and run with me. And uh, it was just a surreal experience to to go step on a track. It was basically just a record attempt by me. Um, and run four laps as fast as I could trying to run even splits and uh, end up running that time. So I ran 449 as a 61 year old. And I'd say that I think that's probably my proudest achievement because it kind of hits different when you can just sit there and reflect on the fact that you actually broke a world record in something that is as popular of a sport as running. Um, I would say my next most favorite achievement, I already mentioned it was winning gold medal at the world cross country. Uh, championships that were held in Sacramento in 2021. And I think that thing that made that one special was not only that it was a gold medal at a world championship, but it was because of who got a uh, sort of sharing the moment with me when it happened. uh, Yeah. The last thing I'll, the last thing I'll add is, you know, since I broke that world record, I just realized, man, I'm running so well. I need to chase some records. And following that, I broke the American record for the mile, the 3k, the 5k, the 10k or sorry, not 10k. I did not break that one. I broke the 15k 10 miles in one hour in the next 12 months. Whoa. Okay. Well, all in
0: 12 months, like trying to go from distances to distances. Cause I would imagine you'd want to specialize for at least six months trying to break a world record in a certain discipline or a certain distance, and then, you know, commit another six
1: months to training for something longer, but it seems like you just knocked them all out of the park. Well, you know, it's, here's what's interesting about that for me. Um, I am a very endurance-focused athlete. I don't run the mile fast because I have great speed. I run the mile fast because I just have a huge cardio-respiratory fitness level. And then I train smartly around that to do the things that help augment the kind of speed I need to race that distance fast. But but that base fitness translates up super well. It transla- I didn't really have to train differently I just had to go find events where I could go run. Um, so I think the mile was a little bit of a breakthrough for me because it it sort of reset sort of what my ceiling is as an athlete, and that has really nicely translated up to the longer distances that I like to race.
0: Yeah, I hear that often with wanting to improve a shorter distance. It's like, okay, make your engine size bigger, and you do that kind of with the shorter faster stuff which the one mile would be a perfect example of that and then about sort of working on engine efficiency at the same time so you want to build the engine size and then you want to make that engine more efficient and sort of just goes back and forth with sort of working really really hard building up the engine size and then just going quite long endurance you know all that sort of stuff which works on the engine efficiency it seems like you've sort of tied that in really
1: well I, I think that's right. And, you know, the other thing about, like, it's an interesting aspect of aging, but, like, you know, an elite time for a 60-year-old for a mile is under five minutes. But an elite time for somebody in their 30s is going to be well under four minutes, right? And so the event becomes more aerobic the older you get. <laughs> and it that's more true. favors it more favors uh, that big aerobic engine um, the older you get. So... You know, at some point, maybe even the half mile will come into my uh, <laughs> yeah. into my wheelhouse, but that'll be a while.
0: <laughs> the You mentioned about, you know, wrapping your identity around just being an endurance athlete rather than a runner, particularly in your 30s and just discovering, okay, well, if my plan of fashion... Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days learning new concepts, and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. The art is acting up. There's a whole bunch of other cross-training alternatives that I can do to continue building on my aerobic capacity. Um, do you still, now that you have these records under your belt, are you still seeing yourself as a, a
1: general endurance athlete? I, I totally do. Um, I haven't done many triathlons lately, but I am very, very uh, adept at triathlon as well because I cross train so much. And a lot of my cross training is on a bike and some of it is in a pool. Um, and so the only thing that hurts me in triathlon is the fact that I transition really poorly. Um, I lose a lot of time getting out of wetsuits and Trying to figure out where my bike was parked and that kind of stuff. But once I'm actually in the segments, I actually move move along pretty well, especially on the bike and running. Um, and I still, I had a really interesting experience. I want to think. I want to say the year was um, was uh, it was it was when I had just turned. I was started the year as a 55 year old and transitioned into the 56 year old age group and. You know, I wanted to run well that year, but I, I came into the year with just really bad plantar fasciitis, so I couldn't run. I didn't run at all in January. I raced the, uh, the U.S. Cross Country Championship in February and won my age group. Um, my, my heel was getting a little bit better, so I was able to get a little bit more time training through running. I ran in the World Championships in July and got bronze medal at 5K. And my planner was so flared up after that, that I had to take another two and a half or three months completely off. And then I ran the uh, US Club Cross Country National Championships in December and I won my age group there. And so when I look back on that whole year, I'd only run 500 miles in total, but I had trained a ton. I had cycled more than 2,500 miles. I had done a lot of elliptical training and a lot of swimming. And so I had a huge base of fitness the whole year and my running was only concentrated into a few months uh, where I was actually able to put any kind of consistency together. But it really surprised me how well I raced with that approach to, um, to my training that summer. And it, it really just it just really validated my uh, understanding and belief that you can just run at a very high level, even on, I'll call it sort of low mileage running. Cause I ended up, my, my total running that year was worked out on average to less than 10 miles a week. But very in the, and I won a national championship in February, one in December. And in the middle of the year, I got a bronze medal at a world championship. So it wasn't, you know, I had a big block of training, ran a bunch of good races and then wasn't fast. It, it was just uh, it was very validating in the sort of my approach to, to my racing.
0: Could you maybe give us a snapshot as to during that year, like you say, quite low mileage running, what your structure was? Like what, what was your week? Like you, you mentioned cycling, you mentioned cross training, but like, what were the workouts looking like? What were the, the volumes and that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah. So I'm going by memory on this one, but you know what, uh, I work, I live in Boulder, Colorado. I um, I live in Boulder, Colorado. I worked in Denver, Colorado and you know, that I, uh, I had a bike route that I could take to get to my office. And so from like, I'd say almost for 20, 15 to 20 years, I I cycled to work like twice a week from April through October. Um, and so there's, there's a big chunk of cy- cycling mileage always in my, in my weekly training um I had a fitness center in my building so I could do um elliptical training at lunch some days even doubles like I'd cycle and then still do elliptical most days I just train once a day and then I would I would find opportunities to run when my foot wasn't broken and when my foot wasn't broken I I tend to be back then especially I would be you know I would try to do two kind of harder sessions a week where not only varying the speed of my running but pushing into lactate threshold and as i get closer to racing seasons pushing stressing my vo2 max you know with you know three to five minute intervals at pretty high level of intensity so a lot of zone four and zone five training like probably twice a week or maybe every eight days because of my cadence of every other day of running when i'm healthy i would um so so my my basic my basic approach is lots of mostly easy zone one and zone two training, cross training, and maybe every fourth day would be kind of higher intensity type of running. I do, uh, you know, we can, we can dive a little bit more into sort of my just general approach now and what I think works especially well for me, but, but that was sort of what I was doing back then. And, you know, it probably worked out to, I don't know. I probably work out to 10 hours a week. 10 to 11 hours a week of total time, maybe 12 hours a week of total time training.
0: Okay. You mentioned easy, the bulk of it being easy zone one, zone two, Uh, how do you calculate that? How do you measure that? Do you go off field? Do you go off heart rate? What does that look like?
1: Oh gosh, I'm one of those athletes where I've gone through periods where I've been just mental and like totally like setting my watch to beep if I go too fast, you know? and then I have other seasons where I never even look at my watch I, I just listen to my breath and I listen to sort of like what my body feels like I'm sort of that's where I'm at right now it's just totally based on feel like sometimes I'll I'll purse I'll keep my mouth closed and see how comfortable my breathing is just nasally because um, I know if I'm can, if I can support what I'm doing just breathing through my nose um, I'm probably in zone one and maybe the very bottom end of zone two but probably not faster than that. Um, So I do, I use things like that. I think it's when you do a sport, as long as I've done a sport, I have just a really good feel for, you know, that I'm going to get benefit from the low volume or low intensity training, kind of high volume, low intensity. Um, And I just kind of know where it is at this point in terms of how hard I'm working.
0: What about the cross training stuff? Do you have the same I don't know, do you follow the same feel of what your body's telling you when you're on the bike, when you're swimming, when you're on the cross trainer um, to depict whether you're in the accurate zones?
1: Well, uh, so, uh, so when I do elliptical training, I often look at my heart rate because if you're holding the handles, it's telling it to you anyway. And so I oftentimes when I do that type of training, I'll just, I'll just be really consequent about it, knowing exactly where I'm at. When I cycle, I don't worry too much about it. Um, you know, cycling is harder to just really just apply consistent energy because you have some uphills and you have some downhills. And I have a tendency to push harder when I'm going uphill and, and then I'm kind of like recovering on the downhills. So I'm, I'm not um, – I, I definitely lean towards being a little bit scientific about my approach to running, but I also sort of let just sort of how I feel and like what the environment is giving me sort of dictate how I train too because I just don't want to be a slave to sport because I like it so much and I don't want to turn something that I enjoy so much for its intrinsic value into something that feels like I'm trying to manage every aspect of it purely around performance goals, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think it does. And you mentioned your training nowadays looks a little bit different compared to that year of, um, you know, trying to achieve all those records. So how has it evolved to now?
1: Well, um, I met a I met a guy named Class Lock through the internet who is a Dutch man, a former Dutch national champion runner, and he's written a book on the way um, he and some of his cohorts train, which is called Easy Interval Method. Um, it had a really interesting. I, I trained my old way, and I ran and broke a world record in the mile, and then like literally within about a month of that, I changed how I was training completely based on just being excited about a new way to approach training. <laughs> And then I trained the the whole next year. I'm using the easy interval method. And in terms of like how my performance changed, I was running at a high level under both of those models, which was really interesting for me to appreciate the fact that there's so many, there's more than a single way to train and sort of achieve like an elite performance. But easy interval training is basically you're just, you're moving into and out of call it comfortable intervals throughout the entire workout. And they're sort of structured around like 1K intervals, which I would do at sort of marathon pace or um, a 400 meter intervals, which I do at a little bit slower than my 10K pace or 200 meter intervals, which I do at sort of between my mile and my 3000 meter pace. And what I loved about training that way is I like running faster. It makes me happy. So when I run, I love the 200 sessions, the 200 meter sessions, because I go do them at a track right next to my house. And I just love to run five minute mile pace. It just still makes me, it makes me feel young still. And that's just, I just love that. Um, So, you know, like 38, 39 second 200s with these easy jogging recoveries and just, you know, 14 or 15 of those. And that's the workout. Um, The 400s would be more like 10 at sort of 10k pace and that's the workout with you know 400 recovery um so but again those are my running days I I really haven't deviated from sort of running at most every other day Um, even when I'm healthy I only probably ever max out at maybe 30 miles a week of of running um So, and then, sorry, the other thing about the easy interval approach is in addition to those, I throw in sort of my normal high intensity type of the training, like every sixth day, which would be about every third run. And that will be, um, I typically, what I like to do is um, in the spring, I I tend to do a lot of hills. I love to run uphill. And so my harder sessions are going to be either longer uh uphill runs at threshold or even shorter stuff um at a faster pace with more recoveries could you give us an example
0: could you maybe like go from say for your longer hill intervals what would be Mm -hmm. like a practical lesson like you know what would your warm-up look like what would that session look like what would the cool down look like as an example
1: yeah um so, so we have this I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world to train Boulder, Colorado is phenomenal, and there's a lot of great trail running west of here and I've just got some loops that are just sort of my favorite places if I want to go hurt myself and run uphill right so <laughs> so if I'm doing kind of threshold there's a I have about a sixteen minute steady climb that I'll do at you know probably what works out to maybe somewhere between eighty five to eighty eight percent of my max heart rate and you know that's just a grind and then and then i'll come down about uh i'll have about four minutes of recovery and then i have a shorter second loop that's a big climb but that one's only maybe about six minutes of additional climbing and i'll sometimes do that one one more time or i'll sometimes do it two times so it's really early in the season i might just do the 16 minute segment and then call it good but after maybe a little bit later in the season i might be adding the second smaller loop or the third smaller loop so that's one of my typical workouts um but then I'll, I'll also go do 30 seconds of, um, I'll go do, uh, 30 seconds at sort of mile intensity, even though it's uphill, it's much lower than my mile race pace, but it's my mile intensity. That's how it feels. And I'll do 30 seconds up and then I'll just kind of walk a third of the way down and then jog to the bottom, turn around and do it again. And I'll do that, you know, 10 times. Um, and then the third thing I like to do on the Hills. And again, this is more to stress my VO two max. But I have have a segment that's about a half a mile, and I'll run that. It takes me about four minutes um, to run that segment at that grade that I'm running on. And that's just a grind. Um, That's a total VO2 max. What I like about running uphill is I feel like it makes me strong early in the season. And I feel like because it's uphill, it forces me to have a little bit slower and shorter of a turnover, which feels like it's a little less prone to injury, although I do think it puts a little bit of extra load on sort of like uh, the calf and hamstring complexes, so I have to be careful with those.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking of, you know, when it comes to running speed, you know, you really need to develop and build your propulsion, which running uphill does that. Your Achilles works harder, your calf works harder, your glutes work. They have to, like, push you up a hill. But in a way, that sort of um, puts you at higher risk of, say – plantar fasciitis, Achilles strains, calf strains, and those elements. But at the same time, you're not thudding the ground as hard because you're running uphill. That ground reaction force and the um, loads that are generated when you hit the ground is also lower because you're running uphill. If you were to do the opposite and run downhill, then you're thudding and really amplifying the vertical ground reaction forces, and that could increase your risk of like knee issues or hip issues and that sort of stuff, or like maybe foot bone issues. But um, if you're really working hard on the uphill and you're really taking it easy on the downhills, then you're probably just flipping the script on that. You're probably uh, really developing those propulsion mechanisms by reducing your risk of those vertical ground reaction type of injuries. So um, maybe that's just a a system and a, a way of training that really suits your capabilities
1: uh, yeah i think so i think um and i i rarely push the downhills um i did do one trail race in that in that sequence of really great racing i also ran this famous uh trail race called the Dipsy, and i had to do some fast downhill running to try to get myself ready for that um and that was very hard on my knees as it turned out so in hindsight yeah that that race came at a at a cost it i definitely had to deal with some uh some uh yeah you know when you're when you're my age there's like you know there's just a lot of stuff that's like not perfect anymore (laughs) Hmm. so every six or so days
0: you would do these high intensity stuff where it's mostly on the hills, and you gave us three variations of that and -hmm. then if it's on the flats would it be those um 200 400 meter in and out of those comfortable uncomfortable intervals
1: no um if i were going to do when when i take my um my faster running or my higher intensity running, um, to the flats after I've sort of built up some, some time in the Hills is I tend to, I tend to do like, um, alternating kind of half marathon 10k, like tempo, tempo runs. I'll like alternate on every four or five minutes for somewhere between 20 and 25 minutes. So it's just good tempo running basically. Right. Um, I like to do a lot of that in the early season. I feel like that's something that just helps build strength. And then as I get when I get within ten weeks of when I want to race my best, I I start going to the track and doing uh, my favorite workout is three sets of three by three hundred meters with about a hundred meters of walking in between and a kind of a rest between each set of three. So, it's uh, I feel like it's a great a great work, training for the mile at my age 300 about perfect because I, I tend to run them in like the mid fifties to the high fifties seconds. Um, and then the recovery is about 50 to 60 seconds as well. Um, and i you know, like I said, I do three sets of three by 300 or that way. Um, and I feel like that workout specifically has just been something that's really helped me move down to the mile. In addition to the way I always used to train, I, the other, the other workout I kind of just fall back on and do a lot is, uh, 1k, 1k intervals on the flat. I try to run those, you know, probably, I I tend to run them a little faster than my 5k pace, which maybe is a mistake, but I don't know. I just, I'll, I'll do four or five by 1k. I tend to run them, you know, 525 to 530 mile pace. Um, at least the last couple of years, that's what they've gone in. How long would we'll your see. recovery be between those? Like four minutes, three and a half to four minutes. I have a, I have a nice, uh, flat road around a rec center and I can kind of like run the, the one K around the rec center and then just cut across to the starting line that takes, you know, just, a it, it sort of works out perfect in terms of the, uh, the recovery interval.
0: Yeah. Nice. Uh, Anything else that you attribute to your success? We've talked about the cross training elements. We've talked about your running segments and workouts in that, that instance. Anything else
1: that we might be missing? Yeah, I don't, this isn't really so much the way you train but it's sort of the way you think. And what I have appreciated as I've gotten older is that there's just sort of power and magic in thinking about and dreaming about big goals that you want to accomplish for yourself and set. And, you know, it's, it's, I find it super interesting. Like, like the example I used is, you know, I made the decision to try to run a five minute mile when I turned 60 after the world championships in France, when I was 56 years old and I ran the 1500 meters and my qualifying time was 435, which is about a 457 mile. And I was like, man, it's going to be hard to still be this fast five years from now, but I'm going to try and 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 that that's a very energizing thing for me because what what i find so compelling about goals is that they plant a seed of something that might be important to me and i know that i plant big the the goal seeds i plant tend to be big things that have a pretty just as much of a chance of not being achieved as being achieved but that's what makes them fun for me right because when you achieve them they're just awesome and if you miss them you look back and say the process is still The process is still very very positive overall for me right but you know they they just they they help me imagine what's possible they they drive good behaviors in terms of like being sensible with things like alcohol and sleep and recovery and you know they're just they just really fit um i guess the way i like to live and i love to have goals that are a couple years out i just and the mile, the mile was interesting because I didn't think I could run a, I don't think I could break a world record when I set the goal to run five minutes, but interesting things happened along the journey of, you know, of, um, applying myself to that goal. And then once all of a sudden I realized how well I was performing, then all of a sudden being able to even think about those goals at a higher level sort of became a, a possibility.
0: Mm. There was a, it's a quite out there. I'm not going to really remember it. Um off the top of my head but it was like you know it's the answers aren't really important it's the type of questions that you ask yourself and it's almost like you know you're opening your mind up to different possibilities with achieving these goals and actually having goal setting as a part of your career and a part of your journey because you're actually starting to um, challenge your own capabilities which you wouldn't otherwise if you hadn't set those goals you could always say "Oh, I just want to try and work hard and get fast and have this really vague kind of idea of what, how you want to progress, but until you get specific and then open up those possibilities, then they actually wouldn't be achieved. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it totally makes sense. That's exactly right. It's like, um, there's something about, uh, setting a very specific thing to try to accomplish in your life that really kind of compels you in a direction. It creates a kind of a, almost a creative tension between where you're sitting right now and, and something that you can see happening for yourself. And, that that can be a very powerful force and drive a lot of really interesting behaviors and to exactly what you said that's all of a sudden you realize you start to realize more very tangibly what you're capable of and it's way better than just saying hey my objective is to you know to run a lot next year in order to have better fitness and better health for me it's like okay now i'm going to i'm going to try to do something really hard and something really that's going to feel really great if if it happens and like i said it has to be a good chance it won't happen. Otherwise it wasn't a very interesting goal for me.
0: Yeah. You mentioned like when you have these big audacious goals that it starts to, you know, trickle into your lifestyle, like your recovery and the decisions that you make around alcohol and all that sort of stuff. Um, How much do you prioritize recovery and what elements of your recovery do you focus on?
1: Um, I, I, I'm simple in this regard. I, I mostly focus on, the two things that I feel like support outside of my training are just making sure I get good quality sleep and enough sleep and, um, and eating good foods, healthy foods and not eating a lot of crap, you know, and maybe the third thing is not putting too many other toxins in my system like alcohol. Um, and I'm not saying that I don't, you know, I'm not saying I just all of a sudden become a, uh, what do you want to call it? a, a teetotaler or something for a period of time. I, I just, I just try to be more reasonable on all of those things and you know um yeah i think sleep is the one that matters the most out of all of those things so what
0: would you count it's good night sleep how many hours are we talking
1: um i'll probably lay around i'll probably be in bed for eight and a half hours and i'll probably sleep seven and a half of those hours like i yep. you know i have one of these aura rings and it makes me feel good some days and kind of shitty some other days you know? <laughs> <laughs> i did uh I, uh, last two years ago, I I flew. Uh, I took a red eye to Boston to race in a cross uh, national championship cross country meet, and I got about two hours of sleep. And I still ended up winning the race, but man, it was like it wasn't a great. It was. Uh, I don't think I would try that again. It wasn't that much fun.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, in regards to other elements of your week, I think of like strength training. Do you, have you incorporated strength training at all in? in your years of running? Uh,
1: You know, I I think I've known strength training has been important since I was 40. Um, But I completely ignored it that entire decade. And then I started playing around with a little bit in my 50s. Understanding even more about how important it was. And then finally, after I turned 60, I actually have made and partly because I have the time, but I made a much more committed effort to actually have a decent strength routine now in my program and and my reasoning for it is a couple of things number one i want to continue to be able to move around on the planet like a a healthy adult and i don't want um you know my body's weakening and you know there's a certain muscle mass that i think adults lose year over year over year and i think strength training and resistance training is the the number one way to, to sort of counter that Um, and I want to continue to be able to do all the fun things I like to do. I love to golf. I love to cycle. I love to ski things like that. And I don't want to give those things up early. And I feel like at the age I'm at now, strength training probably matters more than it's ever mattered to me in my life. And so I'm pretty committed now to, you know, a pretty decent strength routine. I, I try to do three days a week, but I'm happy with myself if I do two, two days a week you know, it takes me about 45 minutes in the gym. And, you know, I, I do my whole upper body and lower body in each of those sessions. And I just do the big muscle groups, you know, for my legs, it's, it's calves, uh, hamstrings, glutes and quads. And then for my upper body, it's sort of shoulders, I do curls, I do bicep dips, I do rows for my back, you know, just just the big muscle groups, I don't worry about the like the specialized little things. I just just yeah. try to hit those big groups.
0: What's your calf like to strengthen your calves? What does that exercise look like?
1: Um, there's a couple things I do. So because of all those years of plantar fasciitis and then a surgery that I actually had to try to debreed the scar tissue, um, I got into like, a, I do an eccentric um, calf raise. I do it single-legged with a 40-pound kettlebell in my hand. And I go up slowly on one foot and then down. And I do sets of three by eight on each side, straight legged and three by eight with a bent knee. And then they also have a seated calf raise machine in the club. And I do that with. um, when, when fully healthy, probably about 45 pounds on there.
0: Okay. You mentioned eccentric calf raises, which usually just emphasizes the down portion of it. But I think then you're saying you're, you're going up and down with one leg. Is that right? No,
1: no, I I should have been more clear on that. I go down with one leg and then I go up with both legs. And so I am really more, more, that's, it's more having a bit of a strength element, but a good long stretch of, of that complex is sort of what the focus was.
0: Yeah. For your quads and glutes, uh, what Mm -hmm. exercise
1: do you do? So for my quads, I do, I do, um, I I do uh, free weights with a bar and I do three sets of eight and I I have to, this is a really kind of a funny story, but Boulder is one of the most interesting places because the club I work out at, uh, one of the people that happens to train there is a guy named Dave Scott, who is one of like six time Ironman champion or some number like that. And when he sees me in there, because he knows of my running background, he'll come and just a, give me shit for how bad my form is, but he'll help me fix it. And uh, I really appreciate that about him. The other person that's always there is Colleen DeRuck, who was a four-time Olympian. But um, Dave Scott actually corrected my deadlift and my squat form this week. And I appreciate him for that because I kind of tweaked my back recently and I was kind of bitching about it. And he came and showed me mm-hmm. a better, sort of the better positions to to be in. But So to answer your question, I for my squats, I do the bar with... I'll be doing less weight because that was one of the things he criticized me for, but I, I was doing 175 pounds and I go almost to to 90 degrees with that. And then my deadlifts were about the same weight. And, uh, um, uh, but again, I think I was doing them both with maybe poor form. So I'm probably going to go down in weight before I go back up.
0: Yeah. Good to say and that. that the, always oh, taking...
1: Yeah. And then the other thing i the I do, the Nordic curl, is that what it's called, the Nordic curl for the hamstring? So I go find the issue. Are a you where I...
0: kneeling? Are you kneeling and lowering your whole body down? Yes, from like exactly. just Keeping straight from the knees up to the shoulders and lowering yourself yes, down. Yes, exactly.
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. Wow. Sets and reps. Um, of, of that, I just can't, I can only do about. Um, you know, if I didn't use my arms, I would break my nose. So if I um, I do I do two sets, uh, two by between four and six, depending on how I feel on the Nordic curls. The other, uh, the deadlifts on the um, squats, I do three sets of three by eight typically is what I usually do. Cool, very cool. Um, We've gone through those.
0: I know that as you mentioned, like, Year by year, decade by decade, people lose muscle mass and it's almost a part of just trying to preserve and hold on to as much mass and bone density and all those sorts of things as possible. Uh, the same sort of can be said for VO2 max. There's some research to show that like as the decades roll on, your VO2 max tends to slowly decline no matter how hard you work or how hard you you train. Uh, how are you seeing this as you go from your from the fifties into your sixties and you're getting these records and running really fast. Are you seeing it as trying to just hold on to as much fitness as possible while the, while all your other competitors are declining and is it almost like who can decline the least or are you actually seeing yourself as someone who is getting faster and improving as you go decade by decade?
1: Uh, You know, the hilarious thing is I actually did improve in my sixties over probably anything I did in my fifties. Um, I, I lowered my, I, you know, I ran 1648 for 5k and I hadn't broken 17 in my fifties and I ran 449 for the mile. And that was faster than anything I ran in my fifties. Um, but, but to be fair, if I would have been training the same in my fifties, those times would have been much faster. So I kind of feel like the game, is the the master's challenge is it, we all have a ceiling of of what we are at our very best day capable of of we have a ceiling and the the goal is how close can you get to what you're capable of what's the gap between you know how small can you make the gap between what you're capable of as a master's athlete and what you actually accomplish and You know, At some point, you might get to a point where you get to your ceiling and then you're just going to have to deal with 1% loss year over year over year because that's the best you're ever going to be able to do. Um, I think when I hit my 60s, I had a bigger gap than I had in my 50s. Um, I closed the gap more to what I'm capable of because I had more time to train. I had more time to augment the base fitness stuff that everybody has to do to be fast with some of the little things that are also – complimentary and supportive so you know a good way to a good way to measure it is like percent age graded right the age grading tables that let you see what you perform at you know vis-a-vis your age you know and how that compares to people when they're open and you know my my age grading mile is like a 353 let's say and you know i never could have done that when i was young so so part of it is i've just I've just really come close to what I think I'm capable of, but I still believe that if I'm continue to gain knowledge in the sport, continue to understand how to tweak the little things around the periphery and be able to do the base things, why can't I get a little bit faster? You know, why can't I get my age grading from 97 up to 98 or 898 to 99? I mean, that's, that's sort of the goal for me now. Right. So, Hmm. but I need your help Brody because we got to get my, uh, my uh tendon fixed
0: <laughs> yes definitely well we're, we're working hard on that and we're making progress uh, I, I was also curious about the you mentioned the Colorado climate and the high altitude do you reckon that plays a role in any of it
1: I ah yeah, wow it's a, it's um I'm not smart enough to understand everything about but altitude but I know that I know that when you're when you train at altitude and you go to sea level, you run a lot faster. And um, you know nobody's going to come to Colorado and break any running records um, unless they're ran, running the 400 meters or shorter. Um, I think the 800 is almost a break-even because of the aerobic anaerobic nature of that race, um, at least for people that are elite. I think for my age group, you know, I think I'm about a second slower at altitude, but you know, a mile cost me sec- seven seconds to race here you know 5k is half a minute you know so so nobody's um but i but i feel like my experience has been i can go to sea level and i can kind of run with anybody i'm um, not to, i mean when i'm at my my top fitness but what what i found interesting is like we had we hosted uh in colorado in boulder last i guess it was last october the u.s 5k masters cross-country championships and you know, men and women from all over the country came here, and I was shocked how many of them ran, ran way more poorly than would have been suggested just by the altitude difference. So I feel like training at altitude and going down is a huge advantage, um, and I feel like training at sea level and coming up to race at altitude is kind of very penal for a lot of people in a way that I didn't really appreciate until I watched how, how poorly so many guys came up here and raced
0: makes me think that some people might suck themselves out a little bit. Like you say, probably they raced poorer than what you thought it would have been just directly altitude affected because if it's say a five K I'd imagine people are like, you know, checking their splits or seeing how they're running or performing. And if the first half goes poorer than they think, then now that it's in their head and now they're like, Oh man, I feel so much more tired or fatigued. And then, the, they sort of suck themselves out a little bit, as well as the altitude, and that's probably where. There's probably a whole bunch of other factors, but I could imagine me putting myself in that position. I'd suck myself out straight away and have a horrible race, which you know might not have been as bad if if I it wasn't right. in my head.
1: Right. I think I think there's absolutely a, a mental element to it for sure, or a psychic, a psychological element. I also think that one of the things that happens at altitude because there's just less. You know the air pressure is lower and there's less oxygen. I think that um, when you go out too hard too early in a race at altitude, you're not going to recover in that same race. You're going to have to finish and then be done and then recover. And it feels like in at sea level, you can kind of almost recover sometimes in the race by just backing off your pace a bit for a while and sort of kind of get. And I I find that's kind of a maybe that's in my head, but that sort of feels to me like uh, another difference about uh, you know going out too hard at altitude is very penal. Yeah, You know, you just, once, once you get a little bit too much overcooked early in a race, it's, you know, you just, you're just sort of done for the day.
0: Yeah. I've loved talking to you, Dan. I was wondering if I could ask any other final tips for people um, wanting to run faster as they get older, uh, apart from what we already have covered or maybe something you want to repeat that that's really integral that, might've already been spoken about. What tips do you have for people wanting to run faster?
1: I, if I think about all the, the things that I did, the little, the little changes I made, um, and I don't have a scientific way of assessing whether or not any of these things mattered or not, but I kind of feel like they did. Um, you know, there's, there's the base building blocks. There's the aerobic work and the anaerobic, you know, training, the, the threshold training and the VO2 max interval types of things. Um, there's the hill running in the spring. That's always been sort of a big part of my, uh, my structure. But another thing that I added in the last couple of years that I think was very beneficial was just very short hill sprints, maybe once a week, like eight seconds, all out, good form. Um, and maybe four to six is all, and maybe just once a week is all, but I feel like, you know, you're just waking up fast twitch fiber, um, and helping kind of build leg strength as well. Um, so I think that was a real, a real positive uh, compliment to my running. I think change of pace. I think if you want to run fast and strides, I'll, I'll throw strides in the mix. I, th- I feel like almost every runner at, you know, at least a couple times a week, they ought to add some, some faster strides at the probably best, maybe at the beginning of a run, but at the end, it'd be fine too. And then the other thing that I added to my sort of, routine was I had a lot of plyometric drills when I would go do training at the track at least a couple of times a week you know so things like a skips um bounding um high knees butt kicks those kinds of things you know I would I would just and so I just feel like you know there's a lot of little muscles small muscles that are involved in running and there's also tendon elasticity and things like that and I think I think you just can't just be in a rut of all you do is go do your, your, your steady state runs with a few intervals here and there. I think you, if you really want to still find what you're capable of and really tap into the, the best running that you're capable of, I think, I think augmenting with some of these other things is, is actually quite beneficial, especially as you get older. I just feel like I see a lot of runners who feel I, they seem like they're super fit, but they're just, they just don't have any gear changing anymore in, in their running. They only run at a single speed and it's always the same speed.
0: Yeah. Well, we've got some future goals coming up here. You, you know, you mentioned your us working together, rehabbing your tip post tendon, and we're certainly going to work hard on that. Once that's better, what goals do you have coming up? What, what's on the horizon?
1: So I'm one of the, I get to be a young guy next year. I'm a 65 year old. So I'm in a new age group, Um, (laughs) you know, so uh, there'll, you know, I, I, I looked at the American records um, on the track and I don't see anything that's 1500 meters or longer that I don't feel like I should be capable of, of running unless I've just fallen off a cliff between now and then. Um, So I would love to break, you know, some of the American um, track records uh, like the 5K, the 1500, and the mile, um, and the road mile. I would like to break that record as well. Um, I I would also especially like to run sub five again as a 65 year old. Only only one other person in the history of man has run under five minutes for the mile over the age of 65, and it's an Australian. Um, and uh, you know, it's just um, it's just such a I don't know, there's just something so cool about being sub five and to do it at 65 would be just epic for me. So that's that's probably the number one thing for me. Um, I feel like if I can run sub five, then you know the world record for the indoor mile, the world record for the outdoor 1500 would both be possibilities. But again, those are those really hard, high reaching lofty goals that may or may not happen. But if I'm healthy and I can train the way I want to train then I also feel like I should be that should be sort of where my, my physical limits can take me.
0: Yeah. What I've loved about this conversation is there's a lot of takeaways for someone, even in their thirties, who wants to have a long, healthy running career and that being either fast, competitive, or just for longevity and fitness, there's plenty of things that people can take away. And I know that a lot of people's goals is to get faster as they age, but also to, you know, have it as a part of their life, not get, not break down or not get really, really slow or get discouraged with those sorts of things. And a lot of these elements you've talked about apply to a lot of people. It's going to help a lot of people and a lot of people are going to take a lot of um, takeaways from this and maybe just start seeing themselves, what it looks like in 20 years or 30 years for them. And I want to thank you for sharing all those insights and sharing your career. It's been amazing to, to, share it and to look at all the stuff you've managed to accomplish. And yeah, it's been great to have a chat. So thanks Dan for coming on.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Brody. I've loved working with you and I'm grateful that you gave me an opportunity to to share some of what I've learned about this sport. That's kind of cool.
0: If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20 minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk, and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough.